Several weeks ago, I did a couple talks on um, vision and what we're doing as a church together and how we're trying to achieve our redemptive potential as best we can and serve God together as a church because we're meant to do it together, not just individually. And um, so the elders and the staff sort of together decided that what we need to do is I need to come back to some of these things regularly to remember. Otherwise, it's a vision talk that happens once a year and we don't do anything, right? So I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about one of those things. And if you don't still have that little quarter sheet, like half sheet of paper with how we're doing things together as a church and I'll back those nine questions. You can get one in the office. They're there if you've lost yours or didn't get one ever. One of the things that's on that list is committing together to make people our business. Committing together to make people our business. Now, I am an introvert and a task-oriented person. And that is just a nightmare to me. Like, my immediate emotional response to that is, please no. Um, but one of the things that comes up again and again and again and again and again in the Bible is that, that God makes people his business. I mean, <laughs> that's what he's doing. And it's very hard to follow God and not follow his primary passions. His passion for his own glory, his passion to redeem his people that are made in his image. It's very hard to do that. And so, um, let me give you just a couple, couple examples. In Luke 15, there's three stories about something being lost and somebody going to find it. Right? The first story is about a lost sheep. The second story is about a lost coin. And the person responsible to find them goes and finds them. And then what does that person say? It's the same thing in both parables. Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep coin. Right? And then the third parable is the lost son. Right? We call it the story of the prodigal son. Um, but the story ends with the father actually talking to the older brother that's mad about the fact that the younger brother is found and everybody's happy about it. And the, the, you know that parable? This is, how Luke, this is how Luke 15 ends with this verse in verse 32. The father saying to this son, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found, right? That's the, that's the rightly calibrated heart according to Jesus, right? One that looks out. Um, another place in Luke's gospel, just a few chapters later, in, in chapter 19, you remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? The little guy who's in the tree, and Jesus goes, hey, well, I'm going to your house. How does that story go? Jesus goes to the party. Luke tells us nothing about what Jesus says at the party, right? Nothing. But at some point, Zacchaeus just stands up and goes, listen, I'm, if I've ever cheated, I'm going to pay him back. I'm going to give half of that I, everything I have to the poor. Like he, he, he believes in Jesus, right? And he like, does something about it right there and tells everybody he's going to do it. So he really is going to have to. And Jesus, what does Jesus say? He says in uh, verse 10, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. And then the word for the son of man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save that which was lost. But, it's, but the Bible does not just say this about making people our business who don't go to church or don't believe in Jesus. Right? In, in John 13, 35, Jesus said this to his closest disciples at the Last Supper. He, sa he said this. He said, by, all, by this, all men, and in this context, that means all of humanity, right? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How will they know? Colon. If you love one another. Now, that's not a reference to all of humanity. That's a reference to the church, right? Inside the church, the people who say they believe in and follow Jesus, if we actually love each other, like, in real time, actually, in ways other people can see, that is the main proof of other people knowing that we're actually Jesus' disciples. Now, that may not prove to them that Jesus is real, but it can at least prove to them that we're no kidding really his disciples. 
And then they can Then they have to deal with the question Of whether or not he's real Does that make sense? And this is one of the ones that's important to me because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I like to get away. I don't want more people in my space. And, I mean, I'm the kind of person that instead of talking with somebody, I would, I would love to be able to give them a handout on their problem and have them read it, and then we could talk after they were done. Okay, that's, that's, how, I, that's how I'm wired, right? But listen to the, in, in Mark 6, 34, it says this. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, Right? You're like, okay, well, Jesus, that's good for Jesus, right? But no, notice the, his heart, his, he saw the people, and the immediate response was he looked at them, and he didn't say, oh, look, a lot of people. He said, look, a lot of people who need a shepherd. And he, he, the feeling was compassion. It, now listen, the Bible does not record Jesus' feelings very often. I don't know if you noticed that. Narrative, narrative is quick. Doesn't, doesn't tell us very often what people's emotions are necessarily, not Jesus very often, but there it does. And here's the thing that I constantly need to avail myself to, and you probably do too, is it says that in it said three verses before this, in verse 31, it says this. Jesus said to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. That's the context. So they had all been doing ministry. Like, there was a point where Jesus' family thought he was going to die of exhaustion. There was a point where he was teaching, and they had to put him in a boat and put him out in the water because they were afraid the people were going to crush him to death. That's, that's what he was—that was the lifestyle he was living. He sent his disciples out. They did the same kind of stuff. They all get back together. Everybody's totally exhausted. They get in a boat to get away from people. That's the way they got in the boat in the first place, right? Peter's got a boat. Nobody has a boat. Let's get in the boat, right? They go to the other side of the lake, and there's people there. That's where they're supposed to rest. They were like planning on having fish and chips. And here are all these people. And what's Jesus' immediate emotional response to that? Compassion. Because, the, because he knew the passions of his father, and he knew what he was supposed to be about, and he, he was about people. And listen, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think you can make an argument from the Bible that's conclusive as to whether or not Jesus was an introvert or an extrovert. I don't think you can. Or whether he was task-oriented or people-oriented. Seemed pretty people-oriented. Still made it through the task of the cross just fine. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe he was just a balanced human being. Maybe we should be such creatures, right? Um, But one of the things, here's one of the things that we struggle with as suburban, because one of the things I've been, Lexi and I have been trying to fight through this for three years. How do you do this as suburban Madisonites in this situation right now in the culture we're in? And one of the things that we realized we struggled with was what I will just call artificial scarcity. That's actually an economic term, but that's not how I'm talking about it right now. Artificial scarcity. There's no way to fit this in, because honestly, you know how many people come to dinner at my house every single night? Nine people. Dinner at my house every night is nine people. That's if we have no guests. Because there's six people in my immediate kid's wife, my mom lives with us, and we got two boarders. Nine people for dinner, okay? And one of the things that Lexi and I struggle with for a couple of years, because Lexi and I are both introverts. We love our private time. We love to be alone. We'll sit in the same room for two hours and not speak to each other. That's just who we are. And now we, so, right? And so, but there was this problem of how can we possibly open it wider, we just don't have time. We've got four children. We can barely get our arms around that. And, and part of it, what we began to realize was it was really just our attitude. It was, it was the way we looked at our life. We thought that more people simply means more complication. That's all it means. It, it doesn't have to mean that. Right? More people can mean more help. More people can mean more support. More people can mean more good examples. More people can mean—maybe a couple, couple quick examples— 
Um, last year for the whole year, every Tuesday night, almost every single Tuesday night, we had intern dinner, which meant anybody in their 20s that was serious about learning about God and theology and had, did some kind of ministry could come to our house for dinner, which is usually between four and seven extra people to dinner every Tuesday night. And I left every other Tuesday night to go to elder meeting at seven before the dishes were even off the table, usually. Now, on one side, you can say, how can you do that? It's just another night where the kids don't get to spend any time with daddy. You get home, you got to get dinner on the table, all these people are already there, you leave at seven— that's not good for your four kids. Pastor kids are already screwed up enough. Right? But listen, early on, I got the people together. And I said, listen, the minute my kids hate this, it's over. Now, most people would say something like this. Make sure you pay attention to my kids because, you know, but I just did it my way, right? The minute my kids hate this, it's over, right? And I would ask my kids, hey, so do you guys like intern night? You know what they used to say? We love intern night. You know why they loved intern night? Yes, it was another night they spent less time with daddy. That's true. But how much less time? 35 minutes tops? But there were all these 20-somethings coming over who were cool and who loved Jesus and who paid attention to them. And so Jude always had somebody to sword fight with. If I was talking with somebody, Chris Engelman was standing there. He'd just hand him a sword. Here we go. Let's go. I mean, and, and, then, and then the girls, they had all these other, like, adult, cool, adult enough that they were cool, but young enough, right, to talk to. My girls, who are now 8 and 10, very impressionable ages, got to see six different varieties of grown women who serve Jesus. That's important. My kids blossomed under that when normally my first resp- response would have been, well, no, we gotta, we gotta have family time here. We did have family time because my kids were part of intern dinner and they asked questions. It was funny when they tried to answer questions. I mean, so somebody would ask a theological question that they read out of a systematic theology and you'd just pipe in. Six years old. Well, this is what I think. <laughs> and the crazy thing is half the time he was right. <laughs> Last night, um, Jude wanted to play um, Wanted to play baseball Now you, if you don't know my, my son is six years old He has arthrogryposis He's physically crippled And he can't play on sports teams With other kids And when he and I Play wiffle ball When the tribe is small It's me I have a bucket of wiffle balls And I toss them to him And he hits them And it's, it's a pretty nice time He enjoys it But last night It was a game We had the lawn chair out Which is the strike zone We're pitching There's teams It's myself and Jude Against Scott and Alexi And we played till dark You couldn't even see the ball anymore And I mean He thought he was playing on the Brewers He's like Daddy I just got a single You need to hit a double Because we need two more runs Because Scott's going to come back Next inning I mean he's like He's ready to He's rearing to go And he's like You're not You're not Daddy you got to do better I'm like They're not pitching underhand to me But listen We could not have We could not have done that if Scott didn't live at my house. It was because we said, hey, you two, why don't you live with us? That he was there. And he, and he embraced what he was there for, right? And so, see, there is part of this setting the boundaries, right? For internet, I said, listen, boom, boom, boom. Here's, what, here's how this has to go. I had to be the chief, right? I had to lead the tribe. This is the dynamics we're going to have. With our borders, I mean, we sat down with Scott and Nicole when they got there, we've, and we've talked. Number, here's how this has to go. Can you do this? Can you help with that? Can we help you this way? How can that? So that it functions right. That's my job. My job isn't to say nobody in. My job is to say, this is how we do people in. Does that make sense? Because we were convicted that we had to make people our business. Now, if that's not something you're living in right now, or if you haven't been around here very long, one of the easy ways to do that is to join a small group. You, there's an insert in your bulletin right now. You can take it out and fill it out, and that will put you to a group of people that you can love and be loved and know and be known and mess with them, and they'll mess with you and all that kind of stuff. It'll just get you that contact, and you'll have something to do because we're going to start the Psalm series next week, and the small groups are going to be going through it, and I think it'll be really good. And so, it's a, 
a great opportunity to try it out for 10 weeks, and then if you don't want to do it anymore, it's, there's a clean time to get out too. But if you haven't done that before, I'd encourage you to do that. But there's, there's also 50 ways in which you can do this. In which you can, if the minute you start thinking creatively about making people your business, the minute you start seeing people as people and having compassion on them and wondering what about them you should have a compassion on them for and where, does, where is it hidden and where can you find it out, the minute you start thinking that way, your creativity for how you can do it will explode. And for some of you, it'll be hosting a small group. For some of you, it'll be having boarders love at your house. For some of you, you're like sports crazy with your kids. Well, you're doing that with other families, aren't you? Right? In, in any context, usually there's other people. And if you have that attitude change, your, your creativity will come alive, and you'll be able to make the changes that you think you probably should. And when you do that, you will demonstrate you believe in the gospel for two reasons. One is that you will show that you believe that what you have, you really did freely receive, and therefore you freely give it. Jesus said one time to his disciples, they were going out and they were casting out demons, healing people, all that kind of stuff, and Jesus said, now listen to me. Freely you received it. Freely you give it. Don't start acting like what you received is something you earned and you're entitled to. You, you freely give it. You see that when we're generous, when we're hospitable, when we give away our lives, when we serve other people, it demonstrates that we really do believe that what we've received, we really received. Does that make sense? And the other is, once you start loving people that way, there are ways in which you'll be blessed back, but most of them are ways you couldn't have predicted. And what that demonstrates is that you aren't doing this for an economic relationship of getting blessed back. I'm going to bless you, and you bless me back. That's why Jesus said in Luke, right, when you have a party, who should you invite? You remember this passage? Don't invite your friends and people. Invite the lame and the sick and the crazy and the whatever, and have a, have a really interesting party. Right? Why does he say that? He gives the reason. He says, then... Your Father in Heaven will pay you back. Do you see the logic there? When you give to people in any way where you don't expect them to pay you back, you demonstrate you actually really do believe in the one who pays back and who is a debtor to no one who's always more generous than you can ever be. Does that make sense? So in those two ways, you prove you believe in the gospel. And let me just tell you this. Um... The most evangelistically successful election I have ever been has been in the last two years. More people have come to Jesus by coming partly through our house. And more people have grown and blossomed in Jesus by coming in and through our house than ever before. It was the other effect that was necessary to blow our ministry up. And it's one of the first times election I have been able to minister together in our whole marriage. So, consider that.